In recent years, confidence in higher education has plummeted. This decline has prompted a vigorous debate on the role of all types of post-secondary education. In their recent book, America's Hidden Economic Engines, How Community Colleges Can Drive Shared Prosperity, Robert Schwartz and Rachel Lipson make the case for the value of community colleges. Surveying five case studies across the U.S., in Ohio, Virginia, Arizona, Texas, and Mississippi, they argue that community colleges serve as engines of social mobility for individuals and communities. Their research shows that community colleges have proven remarkably effective at mitigating economic inequality and promoting social engagement and economic development. Today, Brent sits down with Lipson and Schwartz to discuss what their research means for students and policymakers. We hope you enjoy this conversation. Bob Schwartz and Rachel Lipson, thank you for joining us on Hardly Working. Our pleasure. Thanks for having us. Great to be here. Well, it's wonderful to have you. You're both friends and people that I've had a chance to get to know um, some over the last couple of years, particularly Rachel. Before she went off to greater things, um, uh, uh, was a a key figure on our Workforce Futures Initiative. Um, So... Anyway, I'm so delighted to have you to talk about this uh, new short but uh, uh, packing quite a punch little book that you put together on community colleges. Um, let's start out with a little bit of personal history, um, and um, we'll, we'll start with you, Bob. Uh, just uh, talk to us a little bit about um, your own vocational path. How did you? How did you get? Um, to where you are in your career? Well, uh, not with a straight line, I would say. Um, when I That's because we don't school. like straight lines and they don't exist in nature, so let's, uh, <laughs> let's talk about that. Yeah. So, you know, I, I, my, my father was in the retail business. That was of no interest. Uh, I had an older brother. The two of us happened both to go to Harvard, so the expectation was we would be professionals. Because my brother was the oldest one, he got the pressure. Uh, four of my father's six best friends were doctors. And um, my brother was a psychology major, but got talked into going to medical school because the doctors all told him, get a medical degree and become a psychiatrist. And that's what he did. I had the luxury of not having that pressure. I had a really good high school English teacher. Uh, that seemed like a good thing for me to do. So that's what I put on my application. Uh, and I wound up, actually, as it turned out, my first job was as a high school English teacher, and then a bit later uh, as a high school principal. But the big, you know, on this question of how, you know, how careers change, so I had, a, after seven or eight years out, I came back to Harvard, uh, to the Graduate School of Education, and a program to train um, really mostly superintendents, but school administrators. At that point, I really wanted to be a principal. I hadn't been one yet. I had some ideas about what kind of high school I wanted to to start. Uh, but I needed a job and social capital kicked in. One of my best friends from college happened to be a junior faculty member. He was at the bottom of the, of the rung, um, the bottom rung, I should say. His name was Mike Smith. He was just finishing up a degree in educational measurement. I went to him and said, Mike, I need a job. And he said, well, we just got this grant from the Carnegie Corporation to do a reanalysis of the Coleman Report. And I had no idea what the Coleman Report was. It only was the largest social science survey ever done at that point in the U.S. 
he trotted out the Coleman report and it was not like the size of the Manhattan phone book, chock full of statistics. And I said, Mike, sorry, I'm not your guy. Algebra two was my last math class. It never took statistics. He said, don't worry about that. He said, I'm, I'm the research director of this project, but there are two faculty co-leads and one of them is a guy named Pat Moynihan. And Pat Moynihan happened to be, at, he had just, he was between federal jobs. He just left the Johnson administration. He was on the faculty at the Ed School. He was going to chair the policy side of this 60-person faculty seminar. So I went to work for Pat, and that was uh, kind of career-changing. I got an introduction to the world of policy. I had a great summer internship in New York, a summer job, really, right in 1967, three experimental districts, all kinds of tensions and politics. I wound up helping to draft the city's school decentralization plan, so I got an injection into the politics of education, and that's that really ultimately changed my career. I did, because I was part of a group of people planning in the high school, and I was the only person with an administrative interest, so I wound up being the principal of the school for four years. But I then when I came back to Boston, Kevin White, the mayor, beginning of his second term, school desegregation on the horizon, he needed policy advisor. I'd had as much experience as anybody else. I'd spent a summer in a mayor's office working on education. Mayors at that point didn't have education people. And one big lesson, by the way, that mayors learned from John Lindsay was stay away from education. It's too hot button issue. You'll get killed. But anyway, so that's really what, what that was the transformative job for me. And I've ever since I've kind of I've worked on the same issues as Rachel knows. You know, it's always been transitions from high school to what comes next. It's always been, you know, kind of, you know, adolescent development uh, and the policy issues surrounding that. But that's 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 my story. That's terrific. All right. Uh, Rachel. Your turn. Tell us. Tell us about Rachel. She Lipton, has a much shorter biography um, than I do. <laughs> yeah, much. It's, it's shorter, but but jammed with good but stuff. But very distinguished. Think, so. <laughs> I had always had this itching sense that politics were the route to change, and that being part of a campaign would, could be the most exciting thing um, that someone could do. So I wound up, I wound up uh, sending a bunch of cold emails and. Uh, finding myself a job on the Obama campaign in North Carolina. Um, so I moved, um, moved to Raleigh, not knowing a single person in the state, drove down in my parents' minivan and spent, uh, spent the next six months or so, uh, living in North Carolina, working, um, working a field job on the presidential campaign, which was a, uh, great life experience. I learned a ton, um, it was also, though, one one piece of career advice I've gotten since then is lean into your comparative advantage, just to use economics terms. <laughs> uh, I don't think that job was necessarily my comparative advantage relative to other people in the world. Uh, I probably wasn't the best at community organizing or <laughs> or uh, persuading voters, but it was a, a great learning experience for me and helped me figure out that... Um, but both like the kind of impact that I wanted to have and also figure out where, where I could be most effective. So from that point on, I transitioned more into these kind of analytical policy focused roles. Um, I was unemployed for uh, another five months after the campaign, had to move back home, uh, had no idea what I was doing next. Also a formative experience in my life for anyone who has ever, uh, ever been unemployed. The sense of despair around not having an income, not knowing what you're doing, feeling purposeless. Um, 
I, I empathize now completely and I'll never forget that experience. Um, but wound up through, uh, a lot of coffees, bothering people, <laughs> emails, uh, wound up with a job at the world bank, spent a few years doing economic policy internationally, traveled around the world. It was in the middle East and North Africa. Um, uh, had a great experience, but I, I always had this nagging feeling that international development is a, it's a, it's a strange field. If you are, if you are focused and convinced that there are a lot of, um, important problems that America faces at home. And so when you're in this position, when you're going to other countries, uh, kind of trying to tell them how to, how to address their structural challenges, uh, I just had this sense that I, would be more motivated, more fulfilled if I could come back to the U.S. and, and work on some things I really cared about. So I wound up coming back. I, I did a joint um, business and public policy degree, um, focus at the time on, on really pivoting back towards domestic policy um, and knew I wanted to focus on job creation and access to good jobs um, because I've had a strong sense actually from that back the time working with kids in the after school program that at the root of um, so much of uh, access to opportunity in this country, having a parent who has a good job um, really is a, a, a really determinative factor. And what could we do to more to create more, more of those kinds of opportunities seemed like the kind of problem I really wanted to work on. So um, I spent uh once I was back in school, I got really interested actually in community colleges. That was my one of my foot in the door into this space. My grandfather um, probably took enough. Uh, I think the stat is he took enough classes at our local community college to get um, four or five degrees uh, over the course of his retirement and had become a very involved member of, of the community college leadership and uh, community board. Um, so I had a good footing in the possibility of what community colleges could be, um, wound up writing my master's thesis on California's community college system, started getting connected to folks, folks like Bob and like him in the ecosystem. Um, and from there, I, I went over to an organization called Year Up. Um, some of you might be familiar with Year Up. It's uh, in the academic world, well lauded because it has the largest wage gains under randomized control trial of any workforce development program that's ever been studied in the U.S. Uh, it's also founded by a Harvard Business School alumni who was really interested in kind of creating a more sustainable business model around workforce development. How do you get employers to have a foot, really have skin in the game and contribute to the human capital development aspects? Um, thought that I could learn a lot from an organization that had, that had proven their model operationally, um, really knew how to serve young people. Um, so spent, um, did a, a fellowship at Europe where I focused on their community college expansion strategy and how they were going to partner with additional community colleges across the country, uh, was having a great time over there. Uh, and then, um, Bob's colleague, um, Joe Fuller and David Deming and some of the folks I had had the, the chance to get to know when I, back when I was a Harvard graduate student, uh, Word got around to me that they had some inklings of an idea at Harvard that they wanted to start um, an initiative that would be focused um, on 
um, on Bob's life work of transitions between the education system and the world of work, but also on pathways that are not just traditional four-year degrees. Um, in spite of all of the attention in society at the time on, on how do we create more good jobs and um, how do we create more access to opportunity um, that doesn't necessarily revolve around the idea of a BA. There was surprisingly kind of little going on at the university. There wasn't really a home for that work. There wasn't a driver for more research, for more student opportunities, for more engagement with policy. Um, and so uh, they were looking for someone to kind of help them get it started. And I, I think I said, Bob, at the time, well, I don't know about staying in Boston long term. My my now husband had one more year of graduate school. I said I'll come and I'll come and help you guys take a look at this. Let's see what we can get done in a year, and then I'll make a decision about um, about whether whether this is something I'm in uh, in for long term. Uh, Bob and I actually I think have a common thread in our career that somehow. Harvard keeps pulling us back in spite of our in spite of our lack of of doctorate um, uh, and uh, I got hooked so the, the work that we did together of building the project on workforce I think has been um, uh, the most meaningful work of my career so far and I spent um, almost four years kind of building that building that initiative up from the ground up alongside Bob and David Deming and Joe Fuller. Um, and that later on, Peter Blair and Raphael Sadoon, so just amazing faculty partners. Uh, and my journey, that gets me almost to the end here, so a lot shorter than Bob's. I Back in March, though, I, I had the opportunity to um, uh, try my luck in public service uh, here in, in U.S. government for the first time. So I joined the Department of Commerce back in March um, to help stand up the workforce and economic development aspects of the CHIPS program, our national effort to um, rebuild the U.S. semiconductor industry uh, and uh, grow a thriving uh, semiconductor manufacturing sector. So um, that's that gets us to the present. It's really hard to imagine, given all of that, given the distance you've traveled, I should say, uh, up to this point, where you're going to wind up, because that is a remarkable path uh, in a very short period of time. So um, thank you both for um, just giving us that picture into career development. And I loved uh, what Bob said at the beginning about it's not it's not a straight line. Uh, we, you know, I think we sell our students and our kids on this idea that somehow, you know, it's going to be linear and careers are anything but linear. They are zigzagging, and that's the excitement and fun of developing a professional life. So thank you both for that. Let's get into the book. Um, it's the, the book is built around some case studies, and I'd like each of you to take a few minutes, uh, and uh, Rachel, we'll start with you this time. Um, which of those case studies did you find yourself most kind of emotionally attached to and am most excited by and why? So um, I, I'm certainly biased here. Bob will tell you too. So we wound up um, doing two full um, site visits as part of the research. And I went out to Northeastern Ohio to visit um, Lorain County Community College. And Bob went to Pima um, out in Arizona. I don't know if, if Bob is going to say Pima, but for me, um, 
I, I think I was already inclined towards Ohio before before I went there. My husband is from Ohio. Um, I've spent some time doing some politics out there. Um, but I actually think in a lot of ways, Lorraine is just represents um, the most compelling and um, powerful part of the book's story. A lot of what we're trying to tell with the book is how community colleges um, are integral not just in students' lives, but in a community's life and in the economic trajectory of a region. And um, that they're not just responsive, but that they can actually be at the forefront of trying to drive a region forward and create more prosperity, not just for the people who enroll, but everyone who, who lives around the college. And um, Lorraine County Community College which is just such a um, inspiring example of what a community college can be. So Northeast Ohio, this is the outskirts of Cleveland. This is a region that has, has really gone through um, a tough stretch over the last few decades. And it was remarkable to hear the testimonials, again, not just from the people on the campus, but from the other community members of how this institution is a rock and an anchor of that community. And that it's been there through the worst times. And in the words of, um, in the, words of the head of the local chamber, there is not a day that goes by that he doesn't speak to someone at the community college. I don't know where we would have been without this community college. Um, it has it has been the one thing that has been seeing us through this this challenging period in the region's economic trajectory. And remarkably, I think um, President Marsha Ballinger and her staff have had the courage and the ambition to. Um, to not just say, well, we're going through some tough times. What do we do? This is hard. This is hard when there aren't a lot of good jobs that are growing in a region. Instead, they've really taken, and, and the president in particular, have taken a leadership role in saying, we need to reimagine what this region can be in the future, and we're going to play a leading role at the table in helping to shape that and helping to um, create the human capital that can drive a more um, inclusive and more upward growth trajectory for this place. So what where, what assets do we have? How can we lean into those to embrace future industries? And how can the, the college actually be ahead of the game here in creating programs that will be a, a competitive advantage that bring jobs back to this region? So, so I'm, I'm, I'm really curious, what did they identify as kind of the building blocks um, for their reimagining of uh, of the region? The, the first thing I think that they did was a lot of kind of like a, a listening tour of sorts, whether they went around to community members, but also to employers that were there. And one thing they did uniquely well is engage with some of the small and medium-sized manufacturers that a lot of colleges really struggle to figure out how to serve their needs. Where, um, where are they now, but also where do they see technology going and what kinds of programs... Um, could we invest in that would help um, would help set us apart? Um, the big um, the big remarkable example that Lorraine saw um, ten years before Intel announced that they were coming to Ohio, they started a microelectronics program in part because of that um, of that feedback that they heard from industry uh, around focusing in part just on the supply chain pieces of here are some small uh, smaller suppliers. Um, we don't have any local source of talent. 
Um, these jobs can be AA roles or even sh- shorter than an AA, but it requires some foresight and some upfront investment in building kind of the lab and capacity. They they hired some critical faculty members who had industry experience um, in manufacturing and in electronics to start up the program who are passionate about um, both serving students, but also making linkages to paid employment opportunities with those employers that came from the field. Um, and it's just really grown remarkably from there. Um, the kind of uh, the positive momentum they've had in terms of the types of equipment, the types of talent that they've been able to bring in to to lead these programs. Um, again, I've, it's it's a, it's truly an inspiration for for what other places can do. It's terrific. Okay, Bob, tell us about your your favorite case study in your book. One interesting observation is that four of our five colleges were led by women. Three, like Marsha, were women who had really grown up inside their institutions. So there was a lot of kind of continuity of, of leadership, and they just had a certain kind of cultural style that was very impressive and very collaborative. Um, people was a different story. Uh, Lee Lambert... Um, was hired from the outside. He was the president of, a, of Shoreline Community College in the, the greater Seattle area. The institution was in real trouble, and it's a turnaround story. When he got there, um, the place was was uh, um, on probation from its regional uh, accrediting uh, authorization. The state, um, you know, had kind of withdrawn its funding from the two biggest community colleges in the state. Uh, it's basically said, you're on your own, you have to be county funded. So he inherited a substantial deficit. Uh, and he made some really tough decisions. Um, he closed down uh, one of his six campuses and sold the building. Um, he One of the feedbacks he got from, from the accrediting organization was that, you know, you, you really don't function like your one community college. Each campus seems, you know, to be, you know, very much, you know, on its own. And one of the feedbacks he got from employers is, we don't know how to connect to, to, to Pima. It's not clear, you know, where, where to go for, you know, for, for workforce programs. The other thing he inherited, fairly typically of a lot of community colleges, is uh, he thought workforce development was one of the core missions of the institution, but the institution put no money into it, got no money, for, you know, and basically said to the people on the workforce side, you got to go, you know, go raise your own money which from his point of view just created the wrong kind of incentives that sent people to do short-term incumbent you know, worker retraining, but didn't, wasn't about building longer-term sustained relationships with key, with key industries. So he did a couple of things. He appointed a single president um, and saved a lot of money by reducing administrative machinery at, at, uh, at each of the remaining five colleges. And he appointed a single vice president for workforce who reported who had – who worked across, was a single point of contact for employers, worked across the campuses, and funded the workforce mission. I don't know how much money he put in initially, but basically, um, by the time we got there to look at it, um, it was a workforce powerhouse. Uh, it, I, had, I should say, um, Arizona was one of the states in the Pathways to Prosperity Network that Nancy and I started back in uh, in 2012. So I'd been in and out of the state a, you know, a fair number of times. And I'd run into Ian Rourke, the workforce development person, um, because when we'd have these roundtable discussions, it was clear to me he was very knowledgeable about workforce and was a very active uh, you know, participant in the sort of Tucson region. 
So, um, and anyway, so the, the, one of the things we were interested in right from the beginning, Rachel and I, when we interviewed leadership from the institutions, you know, we had a, I won't go through the whole process we outlined in the book of how we selected these places, but one of the things we really were interested in was we were looking for places that did not kind of isolate workforce development and treat it as, if, oh, yeah, that's something separate over here. We were looking for places that had blurred the lines between the kind of academic side of the institution and the workforce side. And, um, you know, Pima stood out in part because of Ian and Ian's role. Um, my favorite uh, quote from my um, video uh, ex experience out there, similarly to Rachel's, it wasn't from somebody inside the college. It was from the number two person in the regional economic development agency who had a board of 60 CEOs. This guy's job was recruiting new business. And he said the similar thing to what you heard or what Rachel reported from, from, uh, from Lorraine. We don't have a single important meeting w with a company that we're wooing without somebody from Pima in the room. And he said, and most often it's, you know, it's, it's Ian or, it's, you know, somebody who's a direct report to, to, uh, to Ian. So it was really clear to us that they prioritized their workforce mission. They prioritized really helping to shape the future you know, economy of the region, not just kind of res to respond. The other thing I'd say is that, um, you know, like a lot of our places, but in this, I think Pima especially, is a place that really deliberately organized itself around working learners. That's it. They said our population, almost everybody here, 80% of, of our students are part-time and they're working. So we have to organize ourselves around their lives and their schedules. So hybrid courses, asynchronous courses, you know, whatever it took. And they did a lot of things on the financial side also to make it, I mean, their theory was, let's help people get in and out of here as quickly and cheaply as we can, knowing, you know, again, this is a heavily Hispanic institution, uh, knowing that, you know, how critical um, this institution is for not only individual economic advancement, but for the economic advancement of the region. So that, that's to me, was the, was the Pima story. So it's interesting hearing, listening to you both talk, um, you know, talking about community colleges as workforce development um, sort of centerpieces. We also have this thing called the work, publicly funded workforce development system, which uh, through the Workforce uh, Innovation Opportunity Act funds that's supposed to be doing workforce development. Uh, in your experience, what was the relationship between these colleges and the WIOA system? I think it, it varied. There's some heterogeneity region to region, of course. I mean, Brent, you know, different workforce boards have differing levels of capacity and um, strengths and weaknesses. I would say across the board that... Uh, in all, all of the cases, there was some collaboration between the community college and the workforce system, and we didn't hear um, uh, we didn't hear a lot of um, antipathy or like competition. My observation, though, in these schools, again, we we were looking for schools that are at the center of their economic development ecosystem and um, their regional economy. The community colleges appeared to be much stronger more uh, more present players in shaping the future of of industry and um, and and certainly were much bigger training players than 
than the WIOA system in their regions. Um, I think, again, they can work in ways that are complementary, but just from a, a resource perspective, um, the dollars that are flowing to workforce development in these types of colleges are far outweigh what their local workforce board might have access to. And they're also serving a large, larger volume of um, of students than at least the number of WIOA participants that are receiving training. So they're just more a more credible source of talent for local businesses and local employers than um, than the WIOA system has been given the opportunity to be in these places. I don't know. Bob might be a little less polite than I am, but that, that's okay. Bob, now tell us the truth. What, what's it? What's it really? Yeah. What's it really about? We have a, by and large, I mean, its programs are so modest and so short-lived that it's just, it's hard to see much in the way of impact. Pima's strategy was to kind of marry it. I mean, the president of Pima, a guy named David DeRay, now that actually he's now the chancellor of the community college system in Virginia, but he was the chair of the workforce board. And that's a strategy that I would encourage other community colleges to to take rather than dismissing it, really try to kind of um, take it over in a sense and try to make help make sure that it, its dollars have the most impact they can have. But again, I, I, I've seen the public investment in workforce development, you know, over my time, uh, you know, really diminish. Uh, and, um, you know, our bias is if the country's going to have a national skills development strategy, it's the community colleges that need to be in the center of it. That's where the big public investment is. They're everywhere. They serve, you know, the highest need population, you know, of any set of institutions in the post-secondary sector. Half of the Latinos, 40% of the blacks who are in post-secondary are in community colleges. And, you know, we wrote this book in part to try to help shift the balance a bit and get more legislators, governors, and others to really understand that if you fund community colleges adequately, and not just fund them, but fund them to do the things that you need you need them to do for the state and regional economies, that's the place to, you know, really make your bets. And I think, you know, we're now beginning to see some evidence of that. This is not an argument you have to make anywhere in the South. I mean the Southern Southern community colleges were by and large set up as workforce development institutions. They were, you know, that this they were the strategy, you know, when businesses were leaving the North and going south back in the fifties and sixties because of cheap labor, right-to-work laws, governors were offering them fancy, you know, all kinds of, of tax incentives. And the smart employers would say, well, that's all great, but I look at your education system and I wonder where are we going to get the skilled workers we need? And the governor said, oh, I've, we've got an answer for that. We're going to build a new set of institutions to get you know, help give you the skilled workers that you need. And that's, you know, so you don't have to spend any time arguing in places like, you know, North Carolina, you know, on down about what the principal purpose is. In much of the rest of the country, in Massachusetts, you know, if you say to, to people, the, the main purpose of these community colleges is workforce development, people will look at you and they say, no, no, no. This is the main purpose is really low cost first two years, you know, to get people started onto a four-year degree. And then you point out the, the data and, you know, people kind of say, well, I'm sorry, but that, that's, that's what we do. And, and that's, a, you know, that's a, been a source of real frustration for us. And that's, to me at least, that's one of the things that led us to, to, to do this book. I will, I will say, though, um, one of the things I think comes out clearly through the cases is 
uh, we were looking for schools where they viewed that that economic mobility mission as as critical to what they do. And that's not something that should be just limited to what you traditionally would view as like a career and technical education, a technical field focus. Um, instead, you'll actually see a lot of examples of the book in the book of how the colleges are embedding career services, job access, um, internships, apprenticeships into some of the um the traditional transfer pathways, um, the the credit bearing side of the house. Um, and we, we think that that is also critical, that it can't just be that you think about this as like, oh, what's a workforce program and schools need to only do very specific technical training and that's the answer. Instead, you actually see a, a pretty a wide diversity of approach um, approaches in these colleges but there's a recognition that every student that comes through the door of a community college ultimately is looking for a pathway to better economic opportunities. And so whether they're they're sitting in an English class or they're sitting in um, welding, what can the college do to connect them to those pathways and also to ensure for the local economy that here's a huge part of the labor force that um, you need to connect to? How can we make sure that um, the maximum number of those students come out with the opportunity to contribute. I, I had another conversation with Ben Moldovsky about his new book on the career arts. Um, and uh, we may try to figure out a way of pairing these podcasts. Um, he, I mean, he, he has great appreciation for, uh, you know, all forms of post-secondary education, big fan of the community colleges and so on. Uh, but, he really sees in his his work like the need for to combine narrow and broad in the way that we prepare students right you know specific marketable skills are critical but so are these sort of broader flexible skills that can sometimes get lost in the uh, in an environment where everybody's thinking about okay, we've got this employer over here who needs X number of people doing X kind of job or skills. And so we're going to train for that. And then the broader stuff that can help students kind of adapt uh, as technology changes, as the economy shifts, um, uh, you know, we're creating, we've got a whole bunch of jobs coming at us. We don't even know what they are really um, in the future. So, how do you guys think uh, about that conundrum of broad versus narrow um, in terms of uh, preparation for students? I, I have no argument at all with that. I, mean, I think the the uh, we all spend a lot of time on what I like to call professional skills. People have different terms for them. Uh, our colleague David Deming has done a lot of work in this space, um, and I agree. It's a it's a balancing act. Um, you don't want to overemphasize kind of narrow technical skills, particularly since they may they may disappear fairly quickly. Uh, you do want to make sure that people have a, a broad underpinning. I, I have a particular bias in this space, however, which is that those skills are really best taught and developed, I should say, not taught, but developed on the job. And because I tend to focus a lot on high schools as well as community colleges, I would argue that you know well-structured workplace experience for young people 
when they're, you know, when you catch them early and socialize them into, you know, what the sort of core foundational skills are that you're going to need at any job and are going to be the best protection against the inevitable changes that technology and, you know, particularly that AI is going to be, be, be causing. Um, so, yeah, I think, and, you know, I, I think all of our institutions are aware of that. Um, it's interesting to me that almost everybody that we talk to in leadership positions in these institutions, they all have a liberal arts background, as we do. Um, and so they tend to be, you know, sensitive to, to uh, you know, to this issue. Lee Lambert, Lee Lambert you know, is, is, is uh, you know, is, is, he's, he's obsessed with the liberal arts, I would say, in a funny kind of way, even though, I mean, he is, you know, but I just got a nice note from him. I copied you on this, Rachel, from uh, his new post at uh, uh, he's now the chancellor of this big community college district in Silicon Valley and is already reaching out now. He's been there four months and wants, wants some, uh, some help and advice. One other piece of news, by the way, I, I, I'm taking advantage of, of access to Rachel, but it is kind of interesting. I don't know whether you heard that yesterday um, our colleagues at, Pro at the project got a half a million dollars plus award to do a new set of community colleges built around their use of LMI which is, again, one of the things that really struck us was that LMI has absolutely infiltrated the community college world. Lightcast is uh, you know, getting a lot of business from these, uh, from these community colleges. I was just going to, I'm actually surprised, Bob, that you, you were more diplomatic than you, you usually are on this question. I'll, I'll throw in there, I'll take your, your voice here, Bob. And I will say, Brent, I, I, uh, I really enjoyed Ben's book. I agree um, with the thrust of the argument. I do think in the community college context, there is clear evidence that, for instance, a general studies or a liberal, oh. a liberal arts AA has very little to no labor market right. value. And that so, look, we shouldn't equate general transferable skills with that, but but we should we should put a critical eye towards that kind of degree. And um, what, there's a case in one of the cases um, in San Jacinto Community College uh, in the Houston area, they actually judge the success of their advising intervention by the share of general studies majors and concentrators that they had at at the college, and they were able over five years to cut that number in half from 23% to 14%. And they viewed that as a success. And I certainly also would view that as a success because it's not a good service to anyone, it seems, to most folks coming out of community college, especially if you're not going to transfer, if you've had, if you've had no, um, if you've had no kind of uh, focus path. Right. So that, that should be a focus. One of the more interesting interventions that we, we also focus on in the book though, is just this, um, uh, the, these colleges are at the forefront of starting to think more thoughtfully about what these core curriculum should look like. So for instance, a lot of, a few of them had examples of like the summer transitional period, offering some types of um, coursework that are like intro to college. Here's how you do time management, some of the professional skills that Bob was referencing, really making that a focus like course where you receive attention and credit towards, towards that kind of thing. And also 
um, a true focus on embedding career advising and career services into the classroom instead of having it kind of like over here as some other thing that you do, go find a career advisor. Um, the reality for a community college student who, as Bob has pointed out, are um, the lowest income on average in higher ed, um, often are working one or multiple jobs, maybe parents, is that anything that you make kind of voluntary extracurricular activity makes it less likely that someone's going to take advantage of it. And also what we've seen is that in fact, the faculty and the instructors that come from industry are often the best career advisors that exist in these institutions versus some a generalist who's been designated as, quote, career advisor. So how do you actually reward the faculty for embedding those kinds of services and um, that kind of guidance into the actual for-credit coursework rather than making it some kind of like ancillary thing that's an option to add on? Right. Well, that, that is the voice of Europe talking, you know, that's like, uh, the, this is absolute, you're, you're absolutely correct, uh, that the more that we fragment these things, the less valuable that they are and embedding these things, integrating them into, you know, it's all one thing, right? It's all one thing. You have to remember, always be driving toward that one thing, which is to hold these technical skill development uh, programs together with all the social capital development, all the connections, all of the soft skill, professional skill development. It all needs to be happening. It all needs to be happening at once. It's hard. I'm not underestimating the the uh, or downgrading in any way the challenge of that. But if we're not doing it all, uh, then we're not, you know, we're not fulfilling. I think on the mission particularly for disadvantaged populations, right? These, these, are the, these are the people who have the greatest deficits when it comes to social capital. You know, the connections, the soft, or the, uh, the weak ties that help people find uh, employment. Uh, they really need assistance with that. And then, as Bob pointed out, you know, they also need that introduction early, as early as we can give it to them, about you know what what does it mean to have a job? What does it mean to move in the social workplace, um, which is essential for both you know execution of tasks as well as um, you know learning the next job because everybody has to learn the next job while they're doing the one that they've got. Um, really great, really great stuff. I want to I want to make sure that we in this conversation get to the question of the future of community colleges. We have made an enormous investment as a society at every level, federal, state, local. Everybody has invested so heavily in these institutions. As you point out in your work, they are sort of, you know, kind of what's holding a lot of communities together, particularly as they pass through economic transitions. And the need to kind of retool, not just individuals, but entire communities um, to adapt to new economic realities. So how are the community colleges themselves thinking about their own evolution? What are they doing? Where are they, where are kind of the visionaries in this, uh, in this world pointing toward? Um, and, and particularly as it relates to, um, marginalized and disadvantaged populations. Uh, and I'm not speaking just about, you know, the traditional 
groups that we think about, you know, blacks and Hispanics and other ethnic or racial minorities, but thinking about places like Appalachia and, and um, the Central Valley of California and places where, you know, the white working class uh, is uh, has been heavily impacted and is still struggling with recovering from automation, just as we have a new wave of automation approaching. So all of that, uh, give me give me your downloads um, around those issues about the future of the community college system. As we all know, fair or not, there is a pecking order, right? We've got elite institutions, uh, research institutions like the one that Rachel and I are identified with at the, at the, at the top. And then, you know, you go down through, you know, the, you get to these regional four-year institutions. And then at the bottom are community colleges. And so, and, and that has a couple of, of, of aspects to it. One is the Center for American Progress did a study in 2020, comparing the, looking state by state, but comparing the funding of community colleges versus the funding of four-year institutions. And their conclusion was there's a $78 billion gap uh, and that adds up to something like $8,800 per student in terms of, of, of rev, revenue behind each student. And again, if you think, as we do, that community colleges are serving the neediest students in the post-secondary sector, that's a problem. Let me shift, though, to another th issue about kind of the future of community colleges. One is, all around us, we've got signs, again, fair or not, of growing disaffection with the four-year sector. A lot of it being driven by cost and unsustainable debt burdens. A lot of it being driven by, you know, institutions getting caught up in the sort of, you know, culture, in the culture wars as they're, as they're, you know, raining down on our four-year colleges. By and large, community colleges are, are exempt from that. People, whatever views politicians or parents or others have about our higher education system, those views do not extend to community colleges. I think people see community colleges as kind of, you know, workhorse kinds of institutions. They don't have the time, you know, to be engaged in these ideological, you know, in, in an ideological combat. They're very sort of pragmatic, focused institutions. And to me, that's a huge strength. And I think, I, I certainly hope that the trashing and, of our four-year sector will begin to abate. But in the meantime, I think we're going to see more and more focus on community colleges. Uh, you know, I should say, by the way, parenthetically, I mean, I, you know, as you know, Nancy and I have been doing this, this Pathways work since 2012 all over the country. And workforce, by and large, is one of the few public policy areas that has not gotten caught up into politics. We've worked as effectively in red states as we have in blue states. Uh, when you get right down to it, almost nobody is opposed to the idea of creating better economic opportunity, better pathways from schooling into the into the, the workforce. And to the degree that community colleges can increasingly be seen as core institutions to deliver on that, especially for students who, for whatever set of reasons, are not making their way into the four-year sector, I think, you know, the better off. Um, they're, they're, they're going to be. But I'll let Rachel deal with the 
other questions around the future of community colleges. But I just put them in a kind of political context here. And I think this really, for a bunch of reasons, this is the time for community colleges to kind of come forward and shine. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, just to build on what, what Bob said, um, one of the stats we cite in the book, um, some of our the listeners may have followed uh, Raj Chetty and Opportunity Insights work on, on higher ed. And one of their findings that I think hasn't gotten as much uh, attention as it should have is if you look at the U.S. and you look at uh, the data on who has attended college and you look for what they call upward mobility success stories, so people who start at the bottom in terms of what their parents made and make it to the top, the community colleges are responsible for the largest share of those success stories. Now, that's not to say that's a pretty different stat than if you looked at each individual person and you said, should you go to community college or should you go to four-year? Will you have a better outcome? That's a different research question, and that's not what the, the research says. But it's just a question of access because community colleges, the reality is that they are serving um, the the largest, by far the largest share of, of uh, low-income students in the U.S. So from a scale perspective, if we want to make a dent in our, in our challenges around structural and, and economic opportunity and inequality, we kind of have to start with the community colleges and we need to convince community college leaders that this is a, a key role that they need to play. So I think one of the things you'll see in the book is some promising examples of what does it take to, to if you embrace that this is like a key aspect of your mission, um, what is it going to take in terms of kind of the redesign of the institution itself, which, in, as Bob has mentioned earlier, in some cases wasn't designed to be that, was thought about as a an early um an early route to a as a transfer pathway um, built in some ways to look like it did six decades ago, classroom-based learning built for an 18-year-old. That's pretty different from the reality of, of what a lot of community colleges today serve. So I think what you'll see in the book is actions that the colleges are taking both internally and externally to kind of embrace and meet the moment of that challenge. Internally, that means a lot of, of hard choices about what kind of pathways are you actually going to promote. And some of this is leaning into shorter term programs that can bring people back um, into a college atmosphere who had may not have had the best experience in school, um, are not looking for are not interested in a traditional um, uh, experience or think that two years or four years sounds like a really long time. So to get put the foot in the door, you need um you need some op some options that um, are shorter, uh, more stackable, um, more accessible, and and cheap if not free. Um, a second piece that you see. Hold on one second. I might pause, Bob. I think maybe if you mute again. I'm I'm getting some feedback on my side. Thanks. Um, a, a second thing that you see in the book is. In order to be a little more innovative and think about creating new programs that draw new people, you might have to start a lot of that work on what, I don't like the terminology here, it sounds very wonky, but the non-credit side of the house, um, we found across the board that colleges had a lot more flexibility to start things quickly and more innovatively when they didn't have to go through all of the hoops of the academic accreditation process. So, um, but 
the most promising examples are places where they start something new, test it out, find that there's resonance for students and for industry, and then can kind of, uh, the word I think that San Jacinto uses is incubate it and non-credit, and then move it over to articulate for credit so that if you do choose that you want to go on and, and continue to get um, additional degrees, that those courses will, will count in this system. Um, I think we've spoken a lot about the need to more intentionally integrate what's happening on careers with um, with the academic um, piece of all of this. Um, but one thing that community colleges need to do more of and are starting to lean into is like more um, direct work experience, paid internships, paid apprenticeships, earn and learn opportunities. Again, if you want to draw back the types of people who who um, did not love a classroom-based experience. And actually, there's good, there's good research evidence that ad adults learn best by doing. Leaning into these more applied learning environments where um, you both have a clear pathway to employment with an employer after you finish, but also where you get real skills um, uh, that are going to mimic what the job is going to be like. Uh, this, I think, is an area where the field needs to head. You see a lot of exciting examples in the book. The extent to which it's institutionalized is still still an in-progress mission, but the aspiration is there. Pima actually now is, is going to guarantee that 100% of their learners will have um, a work-based learning uh, experience, many of which are paid um, during their time in the college, which I think is exciting. Um, the final thing I'll just say is around, like, again, if you really want to reach more people, how do you think differently about um, how the college is structured and how it serves students? Do you have classes on the weekends or at night that are at times that are convenient to, to students that have jobs, which are most of community college students? Um, I do think there's a role here for remote and hybrid options, especially in rural areas where you may have a significant commute to get to the campus that can open up accessibility. Um, and then I think uh, there's a lot, there's a long way to go here in terms of thinking seriously about um, who has benefit, who has benefited from the most successful community college programs and who has access to them. One of the things we heard in our interviews and saw in some of the data is that there's still a lot of, um, occupational segregation, even within the community colleges. So the best performing, highest paid programs that lead to good jobs after college are still often disproportionately enrolling um, white students. Um, and in some cases, in some of these uh, more technical fields, often disproportionately male students as well. And so uh, I think all of the, even the leading community colleges in the field acknowledge that this is a, a challenge. They don't have all the answers, but it does seem to start with looking at your data and figuring out what you can do to, um, to make some of these programs more accessible to, um, to the students who could benefit the most for them from them. So I could go on on this for a while, but those are some of the areas I'll be watching in the coming years as, as we kind of measure the to what extent community colleges have succeeded in in really meeting the opportunity that this moment provides. Well, this is um, this has been really informative, very helpful. I want to thank you both for the labor of love uh, in creating this book, um, and I I think it is just jammed with important insights 
uh, about the role of community colleges in fostering um, economic opportunity and economic mobility, as you're pointing out uh, with the, your reference to the Raj Chetty work. Um, we can't fix everything all at once, uh, but we can. We have to just keep working at uh, at these things, uh, creating as much uh, opportunity as we can and refining things as we go. So uh, this this is the kind of work I think that you know uh, adds so much to our understanding of education and training and, and opportunity and mobility. And um, uh, again, I just want to thank you both for your work. Uh, on this and all the other uh, exciting projects that you're both engaged in. Look forward to having you back on Hardly Working someday to hear about um, the updates. Thanks so much. We appreciate the opportunity. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Hardly Working. I'm your host, Brent Orell, and I hope you tune in next time to learn more about the state of workforce development in America. Be sure to like and subscribe to our podcast. Let us know at vocation at AEI.org if there are any topics you'd like us to cover. As always, we hope you find the job that fits so well, it feels like you're hardly working.